And so we, we find this going back and forth, and we see verse 1 speaks of judgment, while verse 2 looks forward to deliverance in Christ. And again, we already covered this last week, but without debate, verse 2 is a prophecy of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And as I covered last week, if you happen to be one who is unsure when it comes to the Bible version debate, then I highly encourage you to study Micah 5.2. Because in the King James Bible, it is clear that this one to be born never had a beginning. He was from everlasting. While the new versions say that he had origin. He had a beginning. That's a problem. So if you're, wherever you're at in that debate, I just encourage you to study it. Um, Remember that verse 2 would have been comforting to those in Judea. They've just been told, you're going into captivity, there's going to be destruction, it's going to be bad, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, there's hope. Even though there was going to be destruction and judgment, don't completely lose hope because there's something that still needs to take place in Judea. And so the Babylonians came in very brutally they led, them, they led Judah away for 70 years into captivity. But remember, God had made a covenant with David. And he had said that from David, one would sit upon the throne forever. Well, if you're going to sit on the throne forever, you better be divine. You better be deity, right? Because I don't think any person can do that. And so obviously, what the promise that God made to David uh, was referring to Christ to come. And he would rule in his kingdom, of course. And so God had made this covenant with David, therefore Judah could not be forever destroyed because there was a prophecy that still needed to be fulfilled. Christ had to come, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now the rest of what we covered in verse 2 would be way too much to try to recap it all. If you missed last week, you just got to go back and listen to it. Um, You can do so from our website or our podcast. But I do need to go back and visit some of that for just a minute, so bear with me. I know some of this is boring to some of you, but you'll live. Amen. So we talked about Rachel and Leah. Leah was Jacob's wife of law. Rachel was Jacob's wife of love. Trying to keep all of this very short. Rachel was buried very near to Bethlehem after she died giving birth to Benoni or Jacob would call him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Rachel had earlier given birth to Joseph. Before Jacob's death, he gathered his 12 sons together, and he told them in Genesis 49 what would befall them in the last days, which is the days in which we're living. They began with Christ. They lasted longer than anybody expected, but here we are. What was going to befall them in the last days? He said of Joseph that he would be a fruitful bough whose branches ran over the wall. And remember that it was Joseph who took to himself a Gentile bride, picturing the ingathering of the Gentiles. He was a branch that ran over the middle wall of partition, which separated Jew from Gentile. And taking to him an Egyptian bride, we see the picture of Christ and the church. And of course, that middle wall of partition in Christ has now been torn down. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Amen. We're all one in Christ. And so from Joseph, there would be born Manasseh and Ephraim. Remember that Ephraim means double fruit. Ephraim was the principal tribe in camp to the west. Forgive me if I go fast, but we said all this last week. Ephraim was the principal tribe in camp to the west of the tabernacle while in the wilderness. And when the gospel went forth, its branches primarily spread westward. 
gathering in the Gentiles. Just as the sun rises in the east and tracks across the west, so the Son of God that primarily went westward. Rachel only gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. All of her children were going to be represented by how they were encamped on the west side. There was the principal tribe of Ephraim, and behind those were two tribes, Manasseh and Benjamin. So we have Rachel's children to the west. Judah, on the other hand, it was the principal tribe encamped to the east. Jacob said of Judah in Genesis 49, among other things, but he said this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So it was Leah, Jacob's wife of law, that gave birth to Judah. That was the kingly tribe. That was the tribe that had the scepter. That was the tribe that in time would control the temple, if you will. The law would go forth from the temple. But listen, the law can only get a person so far. Isn't that right? The law cannot save. The law shows us to be guilty. We are sinners in the eyes of God because we have transgressed His law. We have gone beyond what He has said. And the law therefore points us to one who can save. It points us to Jesus Christ. And like Jacob, Jesus, He never desired a wife of law. But Jesus labored for a wife of love, the church. So Leah, the wife of law, led to Judah, which led to the Messiah. If you can picture the camp, it's really amazing because you have Judah over here. You have three tribes and they point down into Judah. In the center is the tabernacle. And out from that branches out going westward to reach the multitude. It's an amazing picture. And so you have Judah leading into Christ. The law leads to Christ. There at the center. And then from there it points to Christ and it goes forth. And remember that Joseph was, his, his son Ephraim would be double fruit, be very fruitful offspring. The multitudes would be reached by love. Isn't that amazing? Remember that Christ, He was like Benoni in that He was the son of sorrow. But He's also Benjamin in that He is the son of God's right hand. And both are fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus would be born in Bethlehem near to where Rachel was buried. Now that's a very condensed recap, highlighting something I didn't get to last week. When Herod had all the children two years old and under killed, it was in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof, the Bible says, who do we find figuratively weeping from the grave? We find Rachel. This is what the Bible says in Matthew 2, 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. This slaughter took place both in the tribe of Benjamin and in the tribe of Judah. But the law... It shows no mercy. You hear me? The law shows no mercy. The law is no respecter of persons. The law doesn't care. It doesn't care what color you are, what sex you are, what nationality you are. The law is the law. And so the law, it has no mercy. The law brings a sentence of death. And it was the law of Herod which brought death to all the children of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. 
It didn't care. Now, we end up loving God's law because we understand once we are in Christ that it was that law that was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But we don't find Leah weeping. We find Rachel, the wife of love, weeping. Proverbs 10.12 says, Love covereth all sins. Proverbs 17.9 says, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love. You know, we ought to weep for those that are slaughtered by the law but refuse to be comforted by God's love. That ought to break our heart. As we go forth to reach the lost, we do so giving the law in order that they might see their need for Christ. If they do see that need, what do we do at that point? We love them to Christ. Amen. The law has its purpose, but so does love. And, and we bring them, and then once we, we love them to Christ, what does Christ do? He brings them into the bride. Christ is the lawgiver. He is the fulfillment of the scepter of Judah, the lawgiver. He is the lawgiver, and Christ is also love. And in Him who tabernacled among us when He took on flesh, we find these two tribes meeting in the center like I was describing, one to the east, one to the west, and they meet together in Christ. Judah's law could only point us to Christ. But in Joseph or in Ephraim, we find the gathering of the people in Christ's gospel of love. And so from this little town of Bethlehem, about six miles south, southwest of Jerusalem, came the intersection of both law and love. And though it was little among the thousands, yet out of her came one that was to be the ruler in Israel. It's a fascinating study to be sure, and one that I haven't gotten deep into uh, for sake of time. But Bethlehem Ephrata, the house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means. You know what Ephrata means? Fruitful. Fruitful. Here Christ would be born who is the bread of life. Here He would be born who is fruitful and bringing redemption from where? Out of every nation, tongue, kindred, tribe, and people. He's fruitful, amen? He's the bread of life. Um, and so we find all these amazing pictures. It's so fruitful that it's a number that no man can number. What a multitude. Um, you say, where are we at in the Bible? Go to Revelation, you'll see us, amen? There we are, a number that no man can number. Well, let's move on to verse 3 because I bored everyone to death with that. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth have brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. We have um, talked about this back and forth. We see now that verse 1, judgment. Verse 2, look out, there's deliverance. Verse 3, look out, we're going to be given up. We're in judgment again. That's what the opening of verse 3 is seven, uh, saying. Therefore, he will give them up. Of course, before this verse is out, we're back to deliverance. The he in, in this verse is the ruler to be born in Bethlehem. That's how I read this. I don't know how you read it. Therefore, he will give them up. Who, who must that refer to in context? The one that's going to be born in verse number 2 is how I see this. And so this is Christ. It's God. God is going to give them up. And listen, those are words that no nation, no people ever would want to hear from God. I'm giving you up. That's a terrible place to be. It means judgment is coming. It's on the way. And it's going to be severe. God allows people to do what they want in their own eyes. Right? I mean, He doesn't force you to 
be a good little Christian. It doesn't force you to do all those things we're talking about in the morning service, five to thrive. You can do what you want to do. We see this kind of language about giving them up in Romans chapter 1 as well. I'll just give you the, the clips here. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And we are witnessing that in our day. Vile affections. Homosexuality. We could probably throw in the transgenderism stuff in there. Things that are not convenient. God gives them over. Dishonoring their own bodies between themselves. Now, God goes on to list a lot of things there at the end of chapter 1. In that list includes something that says disobedient to parents. Isn't that amazing? We, we often think that when God gives somebody up, that's it, they can't be saved. Read chapter 1 in context and you'll find that that's not the case. There's a lot of things listed at the end of chapter 1 that are talking about that reprobate mind. One of them is just being disobedient to parents, and I doubt there's one in, a, in here that was perfect in their upbringing. <laughs> we are witnessing in our day what it looks like in a society when God finally says, I'm giving you up. If this is what you want, if this is the path you want to take, do it. We are seeing it. If you are old enough, it is undeniable. God is giving people up to their own lust. To vile affections. To a reprobate mind. And it's not good. As Moses was about to pass off the scene, he reminds the children of Israel that God would go before them into the promised land to drive out the inhabitants and to possess the land. And in Deuteronomy 31.5, Moses said, And the Lord shall give them up before your face. God was waiting to bring Israel out of captivity in Egypt, out of bondage, slavery, until what? Until the wickedness of the Amorites was full. I think the Bible might say the iniquity was full. There had come a point where God said of those in the land, I'm giving you up. That's it. And God brought out this people Israel, the children of Israel, to go in and drive them out. God would bring judgment to all of those ites, right? Girgashites, Jebusites, Canaanites, out of sight. Well, as you know, Israel didn't fully drive the, the inhabitants out. And in time, Israel, especially the house of Israel, which never did good once they became their own kingdom, never had a good king. Remember, they were the ones in Jeroboam's day that set up the two golden calves immediately after the kingdom split because Jeroboam said, I don't want them going down to Jerusalem to worship because they're going to want to reunite. It's amazing how religion and politics is used. And so they set up the two calves, one in Dan, one in Beersheba, and they kept people from going down to Jerusalem to worship. And the house of Israel never had it together. They were always wicked. They adopted idol worship in the place of God, and God would eventually give Israel up, the house of Israel. 
gave them up. Psalm 81, 9 through 13. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust. And they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. So when God gave them up, He allowed them to do whatever they lusted after. What did they lust after? Strange gods. They worshipped them. And this idol worship, it angered God. 1 Kings 14, 15, and 16 says, For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and He shall root up Israel out of this good land which He gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river, because they have made their groves, provoking the Lord to anger. And He shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin, who made Israel to sin. 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 7 Now that this has happened to the house of Israel, Judah's being warned, don't be like your treacherous sister. Don't do what she did. You ought to learn from them. Well, prophecy comes to Judah, 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 7. It says, And be not like your fathers, and like your brethren, which trespass against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore God gave them up to desolation as ye see. They were living in a day that they could see this giving up taking place, much like we are. They saw what happened in Israel, the house of Israel. They saw that they were given up by God and the Assyrians came in and there was this judgment. And God said to Judah, don't be like them. I've given them up. You've seen it. You can see what it looks like. You don't want that. God said He would give them up and He did. They were taken captive and they were sown among the nations. And it was in Hezekiah's day, the king over the house of Judah when the Assyrians took over the house of Israel. So Judah was being warned in the days of Hezekiah, pay attention. Don't be like Israel. I don't want to give you up to desolation, but I will. Judah refused to take heed, as you know. And so here in Micah 5.3, we see that judgment would come to Judah as well. Therefore, he will give them up. Judgment's on the way. God allowed them to chase after their own heart's lust, and when they refused to repent... The time had come for them to reap what they had sown. God allowed the enemy to come in, take Israel captive. God would allow the enemy to come in and take Judah captive. He gave them up. This is the time when God removes His hand. Do you hear what I'm saying? Who is God going to allow to come into America? Well, it's interesting the way our borders are right now, but that's a whole other thing. But you'll find that there's a biblical principle there over in Isaiah where God says, I will bring those from other lands into your borders as a judgment. What does it look like? I think we got a glimpse of this on September the 11th, 2001, when God removes His hand from this nation. Four planes hijacked by terrorists. Two flown into the Twin Towers. One into the Pentagon, one was downed in a field in Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 people killed. Largest terrorist attack in the world in history. 6,000 people were injured. I'm saying this. We don't want to see what it looks like when God says, I'm giving you up. And if there's one thing we ought to be learning right now in this nation is this. This world is not our home. I love America. 
spent 21 years serving my country. I love this country. This world is not my home. God will eventually give us up if there's not repentance. We don't want to live in that day. You say, why? Because it affects both the wicked and the righteous. Do you reckon there were some saved people that died when the towers fell? Jesus says as much about the tower that fell in His day. He said there were some righteous killed along with the wicked. You see, when when God says, I'm giving you up, and the enemy comes in, it affects both the righteous and the lost. And we ought to weep for this. We ought to be crying out to God for revival. We ought to be begging God to move in our lives. I want to read you one section of what this looks like, of what this looked like for Judah. It's a little bit lengthy. Stay with me, please. 2 Chronicles 36, 14 through 20. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought them up to the king of the Chaldees. That would be the Babylonians. Who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary. Had no compassion upon young men or maiden or old man or him that stood or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. They burnt the house of God, break down the wall of Jerusalem, burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were his servants to him and his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. That's what it looks like. Doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're a, a woman, a child. Doesn't matter if you're a man and an old man. When God says, I'm giving you up, there's no mercy. I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you the seriousness and the severity of what God is saying here in Micah 5.3 when He says, I'm giving you up. And how we ought to pay attention in America because we are seeing it unfold right before our eyes. And we don't want to be in the company. We don't want to be in that generation where God said, that's it, I'm giving you up. You don't want to be grouped with those who experience God's hands of protection and blessing being removed. May America turn to God. God's prophets are still crying out from the pulpits of America, get right with God. But they're being mocked. Now, continuing on in verse 3, we see that God would give them up until the time that she with which travaileth hath brought forth. Now, I love studying God's Word. Amen? I do. I, I mean, you ought to be happy that your pastor loves to study God's Word. That's kind of a good perk, you know, for somebody that you want to preach to you. And so I love studying God's Word. But sometimes I get sidetracked in all the opinions that are out there. I don't know if you find yourself doing this. I, what I found when I came to verse 3. Many modern preachers are bypassing this altogether. I found that amazing. 
I have my theories as to why, and I, I, I might get into those. I might not. We'll see if my filter kicks in when it should. Others only speak in generalities. And, and really, the, the reason I think a lot of that is is because a lot of people only come to Micah 5 around Christmas time because it's a prophecy of Christ's birth. And, and so it's more of a topical sermon than actually going verse by verse, trying to make sure we understand all that God's saying in, in all of this. And, and so I might can, can give them a little bit of pass on that, but um, I'm just a nice guy anyway. But I want you to know I always do my best to rightly divide the Word of God. But as you know, it comes with these challenges when you go verse by verse. Because when we go verse by verse, I'm saying I'm going to address every verse whether I understand it or not. And so you have to study it, actually, and try to see what God is saying. Um, while many bypass this, I have found that those who do address it are divided as to the interpretation here. Now, here are some of the most prominent opinions. There are those who see a near fulfillment in coming out of captivity... Some see this as a continuation of the birth of Christ. Some see the birth of the church. And some see a fulfillment in the end of this age. I have found that to be the most common thoughts from what verse 3 is saying. Until the time that she which travaileth had brought forth, then the remnant shall return. Now, I don't want to get into all the opinions out there because there, there's more than just that. I'll let you study it if you want but I want to give you my take on what I currently feel this verse is speaking about. First, there is likely an allusion to a near fulfillment of Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity. It speaks of a woman in travail. She's about to give birth. Remember what was stated in Micah 4.10. It says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There thou shalt be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. So we find that language of coming out of captivity as a woman given birth when they were to go into Babylon. We see that in Micah 4. They would go into captivity. It would be a painful experience likened to a woman in travail. But they would be delivered. They would be redeemed from the hand of their enemies. Now, I certainly take no issue with that application. I think that's fair that that opinion is held. But I believe from verse 2 that the context here is still the birth of the Messiah. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though there'll be little among thousands, out of thee shall come one who's going to be ruler of Israel. So it's talking about the birth of Christ. Verse 3, therefore. When you see therefore, you're supposed to find out what it's there for, right? Therefore. He shall give them up until the times that she which travaileth had brought forth. So I believe in context here, it is talking about when she which would travail would bring forth, that it best fits the birth of the Messiah. We just had the prophecy that he's going to be born. Then we see next, therefore she which had brought forth. I believe that verse 3 is telling us that the she that's going to travail is going to give birth to Jesus Christ, obviously pointing to the Virgin Mary. Therefore, until the time seems to be the reference to the time that Christ was born into this world, which happens to be the most common opinion of the older commentators. I find that remarkable for a number of reasons, but the old-timers believed that's what this was saying. 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons. And this would fit, this language here would fit that God gave them up until Christ. Because the Babylonian, He gave them up, the Babylonians came in. After that, the Persians. After that, the Greeks. After that, the Romans. There was constant Gentile dominance. You had this one brief period that they call the Maccabees in which uh, they kind of revolted against the Greeks and for a period had a little bit of, of independence. If you, but it, it never really was. There was always that, that iron fist of, Gre- of Greece over them. And so they never really got out from under. God says here that He was going to give them up until a certain time. This is why it's important to try to identify this. Because of this last statement. Then... Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now, I think the reason why this phrase, this passage, gives many today cause to pause is because it comes down to one's interpretation of physical Israel. Particularly, when is God gathering Israel? If we understand, she which travaileth to mean the birth of Christ, then the then in verse 3 must take place sometime after the birth of Christ. And it would have to anyway. I mean, that just makes logical sense. But it would have to take place after the birth of Christ. And even though there's no precise time frame given, the language to me seems to indicate that this is going to happen pretty soon after Jesus' birth. She's going to travail. She's going to bring forth. Then the remnant's going to come together. For those of you in the know, you know why this is controversial and why so many people are bypassing it. Some of you might just be like, what are you talking about? And so then the remnant would be gathered in. It does not say, and it shall come to pass. It does not say in the process of time. It does not say in ages to come. It does not say any kind of language which would indicate a long way off into the distant future. Therefore, this phrase, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, would seem just my opinion, would seem to refer to Christ gathering people together in the gospel. Or we would say the new covenant. Jeremiah made it clear that God would make a new covenant with who? The house of Judah and the house of Israel. And we know that would include the Gentiles because we are brought in under the new covenant. If this is true, then many people's theology is brought into question. Concerning Israel. This verse says, a remnant shall return. Which just happens to to agree with what the Apostle Paul said over in Romans 9 and verse 27. He said, Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So much of the talk today in prophecy surrounds Israel. Everybody's looking for, for red heifers and temples and special color purples and all of this stuff and, and, and great, whatever. A lot of this surrounds Israel, and I'm doing my best not to go there this morning, but there's all this focus on Israel being regathered. These dry bones are coming together, and God's going to breathe in. Shut that thing off. We're not done yet. 
It's like we don't want to see or admit the, pos- the possibility of a spiritual ingathering, a spiritual deliverance, a spiritual kingdom. And I find this focus on Israel remarkable when the Bible is clear that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one. We who were afar off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. And you have to remember that when the house of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, they were literally sown among the nations. They lost all their identity. Can you find the house of Israel today? And so they they were completely sown. And, And listen, this gets way deeper than I have time to get into. Don't ever say that Jews and Israel are synonymous. They're not. Jews are the house of Judah. That's very important when you study your Bible. So therefore... Anyway, I'm going to complicate this. Let me, let me finish because we already had one little buzzer there. Um, and so the house of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. They were sown among the nations. If I can put it this way, they became Gentiles by intermarrying. Isn't that what we see when Jesus shows up on the scene just north in Samaria? Those half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And the Jews wanted nothing. The house of Judah wanted nothing to do with those in Samaria. They treated them like Gentiles. And over time, the house of Israel has been so sown among the nations, completely lost the identity, and in essence became Gentiles. So in Christ, all are being gathered into one body. I want to tell you this morning, and I want you to get this, there is only one bride. There's not two brides. Jesus is not a polygamist. There's one bride in the Bible. But it's like we're trying to make two. We're trying to say, no, 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 there's this one bride over here. It's a Gentile bride. But hang on, Israel, the day's coming. You're going to have your own little separate party. There's one marriage supper of the Lamb. This is important prophetically. Now, be back tonight because I'm going to talk about how you don't need to worry about prophecy so much. (laughs) What I find fascinating is that there aren't any verses in the New Testament which speak of a return to the land. I mean, for something that is so monumental... One would think we would see the fulfillment somewhere in the New Testament or that it would be foretold of somewhere, but it's not. All that ever seems to be cited are a few verses from Romans chapter 9 through 11 that are taken out of context. Yet there are plenty of verses which speak of believers being one in Christ. Well, I don't really want to get tangled up here in the weeds, but this will turn into a whole separate series if I keep talking. And who knows, as you read through this chapter, maybe more will be said. You can let your eyes fall. Verse 7 and on, you see the remnant of Jacob talked about there. Uh, Maybe we'll say more as we go in this chapter. I don't know yet. But uh, for me personally, as I close, I think the context here is, is clear. The Messiah is the ruler of Israel. I think everybody agrees with that, no matter where you're at um, prophetically. He would be the one that would give up Israel and Judah until the time of his birth. And once he gave his life a ransom for many, he ushered in the new covenant. And people have been gathered in ever since from that fruitful bough of Joseph that ran over the wall. We've seen the ingathering and people have been experiencing deliverance ever since. Now, that's my current take on Micah 5.3. Ask me in the next 20 years when we go through Micah 5 and I'll give you my opinion then. This is where I stand right now. We'll see more about Christ next week and what He's going to do after His birth there in the following verses. Let's pray.